1: Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind, so when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado.
2: Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. has got
1: the better of it, and he looks to get the better of Spyco. Today, we have a great honor. Uh, We're going to have a very special guest on the podcast. And every once in a while, you get to talk to someone rare, someone with knowledge and experience that you uh, don't get to interact with uh, very regularly. So today, we're going to have someone on the podcast who is at the Emirates for the Sunderland game. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. That's right. There is such a person who exists. His name is Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Stilberto. Hello,
0: Tim. Hello, there.
1: Hello there indeed. And Clive, he's on Twitter at Clive P A F C. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Hello, hello indeed. Tim. Yeah. You uh you were there. You yeah. were you were one, one of, one of, of the people. Yeah, one of the <laughs> rare few people. So before we even talk football, let's talk stadium. Mm. Mm. Is it the weirdest atmosphere for any um, quote unquote meaningful? In other words, not preseason, not you know, uh, uh a game that doesn't count that it was the weirdest atmosphere at the Emirates you've been to so far.
3: Yeah, a little bit. The atmosphere in itself wasn't that weird. It was, it's the most empty. I think I've ever seen it. Um, I'm trying to think of games that, you know, it's, it's been, Fairly empty at times, but I think I'm, I think that's the worst I've ever seen.
1: What, what yeah, percentage do you think was was occupied? I mean, I realize it was a sellout, and thank God for that. But what percentage yeah. do you think were there?
3: I reckon it was somewhere between. I reckon it was about forty-two thousand, maybe forty thousand. So it was it thirds? was around a third. Yeah, empty. I'd say. Okay, um, but that. I, I mean. It kind of looked like uh, the ghost of Europa League future, um, to be <laughs> honest. Um, but, it, it, um, yeah, it, it didn't really make the atmosphere that weird. And actually, I, the atmosphere was quite positive. And uh, I wonder if that was because, you know, not to cast any aspersions on the people that weren't there, but, you know, the people that were there kind of wanted to be there. Um, And even with, you know, about 10 minutes before we got the goal, when you'd expect the crowd to be a bit testy, uh, having failed to break Sunderland down for 60 minutes or so. I I think, to be fair, there was always a sense that the goals were coming. So in that and, you know, these don't feel like massive pressure games at the moment. I think Arsenal are in a a bit of a a weird, quite a nicely weird in a way, um, situation in that the pressure is completely off. Um, and not just because they're chasing because it feels like all of the recriminations and fallout for, you know, not finishing in the top four feel like they've already happened. Yeah, that's a great point. It feels like that volcano's already exploded, um, you know, so it's not like it's been, you know, neck and neck all season, you know, not like past seasons where it's really been like, you know, neck and neck, like a couple of points in it. It just didn't seem possible a couple of weeks ago. And I think people have just expended so much anger um, on the team and the way they've played and the manager and the board and blah, 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 that people don't really have the energy anymore. It feels like that's all peaked. Um, and even if we don't do it on Sunday and we finish fifth, I think people have got to the acceptance stage anyway. Um, probably a lot of people are fairly apathetic as well. Um, there's no denying that. But it, it, it feels like we've been in this weird vacuum for a couple of weeks where it's almost felt a little bit consequence-free. Um which probably in a strange way contributed to the fact that the atmosphere was, was, was actually, you know, it wasn't rocking or anything, but it was fairly jovial. There, there, were, there wasn't much in the way of moans and groans or desperation. And maybe that's just because people aren't that invested in um, the idea of us finishing fourth at the moment. But yeah. it, was, it was certainly very strange seeing the stadium quite that empty. Um, But I wouldn't say the atmosphere – well, the atmosphere was strange in that it it wasn't crushingly negative.
1: Um, Do you – I've seen some comments insinuating that the protest was a huge success, that this was somehow a reflection of the protest. Do you get the sense that the fans stayed away as part of some protest or that this was genuinely sort of your your garden variety, organic uh, apathy at play?
3: A little bit of both, probably. I think. I mean, it's obviously it's difficult to distill between, you know, active protest and inactive protest. You know, between those people who went, right, I'm making a stand, I'm not going tonight, and those people who just went, it's Sunderland on a Tuesday night, and there's not an awful lot to play for. Um, I think what it does bring home is that the club have got to try and do something about this a little bit more, particularly if we are in the Europa League next year. They're going to have to be a bit more creative. in what they do with season ticket holders and they haven't released uh they haven't opened season ticket renewals yet which suggests that there's an either or situation here where they're waiting to see which competition we're in which suggests that if we're in the Europa League they'll do something a bit different what it is they're keeping quite close to their chest but I think really you know they've got they've done some things like the ticket exchange and all of that but they've got them Make that a little bit easier. The other thing I really think they should bring in is um, home credits. Um, so when you get to a cup final, Arsenal have forty-two thousand season ticket holders. We get twenty-eight thousand, I think, tickets for the cup final. So that's you know around the. Th- I think it's about twenty percent of our season ticket holders miss out on cup finals, um, assuming everyone applies. And I really think what the club should do is just say, look, you know what, every time your seat is full. Whether it's you or someone else, whether you've done it on the exchange or just like giving it away or whatever, that's a tick in your box. And every time it's empty, you know, that's that's a black mark against you. And at the end of the season, when it comes to um, applying for cup final tickets, those people who fill their seats the most um, are are ahead in the queue. I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in that. And I think that would go a long way to addressing scenes like we saw on Tuesday night with, you know, all those tickets were paid for and people decided not to turn up.
1: Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, and then you get butts in the seats, and it doesn't matter yeah. if it's your ticket or not. What the what the club cares about yeah. first and foremost is that you have, at least presumably Arsenal supporters at the Emirates, mm. cheering on the team. Um, exactly. Okay, that makes sense to me. Let's get into the game. Clive, uh, it was a fairly consistent lineup. Uh, it looks like... Um, You know, with with some injury situations, we had to make some adjustments. But one of the questions we got on Twitter was whether, you know, here we are, second to last game of the season. Does Arsene Wenger have an 11 that he considers his best 11 yet? Does he know his best 11? Would you say now, 37 games in the league season, that he would be able to name for you his best starting 11?
2: I'm not sure he would, and I'm not sure how important that is some of the time. Actually, because I'm of the belief that every week and every game is different, and you need different people for different moments. And I think we get fixated sometimes on a first eleven. I do sort of want to see certain partnerships in place in key positions, particularly down the middle of the pitch. But but in some areas, especially in wide areas, I mean, we saw. Against Sunderland, there was a period for them nearly an hour really where we sort of lacked a dribbler in wide areas. We lacked we lacked something else when we were playing a team that was, you know, getting losing confidence as the minutes went on. We needed something to break them open and we started to look around and thinking, you know, have we got too many d- dependence on the pitch? Have we got enough dribblability in wide areas? Are we going past people to move people around? So every game is different. So I, I I do think there's some obvious holes in the first eleven, particularly at uh, the left side potentially, um, potentially both backs I know we need a backup for for Bellerin, a proper backup, and we need a centre forward and, and we need a partner for Shaka, and 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 that's that's the key areas really. And everyone sort of start to quote those areas, and um, we probably need to rebuild our midfield given the age injury profile of some of those players and, and some of those players maybe outstate their welcome. So um so yeah, I don't really worry about first eleven. I worry about our manager sustaining this a level of coaching, particularly what we do defensive strategy wise, what we do off the ball, and how tactically flexible we can be game on game, rather than having a first eleven playing it till they break and then having to pe- put people in. So that's my thoughts,
1: really. yeah, no, that's that's fair. Um I mean, what what do you think about midfield in particular? I mean, do you have a sense that that Ramsey and Shaka together uh, in the three at the back, three, four, three sort of that we've that we've settled on or three, three, four, two, one, or whatever whatever we're calling it. um do you think that that's the right pairing and that presumably going into next season, that could be the pairing going forward?
2: It's the pairing that's working the best at the moment I think it has a ceiling Uh, to me I don't think it's fast enough I don't think um, they play close enough together against the very very best I don't think their defensive awareness is good enough I don't think their recovery speed is good enough they are players when you close your eyes and you look at them you remember them one on the ball and one off the ball running into areas where you can get on the ball and that's their primary strengths and and I I'm I think they can work, obviously they can work. Probably against 60 sixty, ten percent of the teams. They work fine. But I think we need something else. I think we need more pace, we need more sprinting speed, we need more intensity in that position. And we definitely we need some dominance in that position in my in my opinion. As another option. You know, I'm more of an all round player that can really dominate his man rather than try to get into areas where he can affect the game. Mm-hmm. So that that's how I feel. Um, and it, it, are, are you, there's, there are yardsticks out there, right? So there's been a three or four yardsticks that really stick out to me. Uh, obviously, Chelsea. Chelsea away. Spurs away. For a period, Bayern Munich away. And we were dominated. We were dominated technically. We were dominated physically. We mustn't forget those moments. We mustn't forget. If you want to overcome these teams when it really really counts when it means something we need to bring more to the party we can't accept what we have and so we need to bring those attributes that those players don't have and then we need to pick those players for those moments so we need to upgrade we mustn't be afraid of it we mustn't we must grasp it upgrade those positions properly add the dominance Have the speed and intensity At the technical security, I don't want to miss that. I know Tim's thinking it, and he's absolutely right. I don't want to miss it. We need to be more secure on the ball. We give the ball away too much. It will count against the better teams. And we need to add that to this group. And forget the names. Just look at the attributes and try to add it.
1: uh, Tim, the, the game itself was sort of an interesting one because we dominated large stretches of it, and the goalkeeper had sort of a, a world-class performance at times. And then the, there were other times where we had sort of our usual inability to, to really break them down and create chances. But overall, the performance was adequate, I think you would say. It was interesting in that apparently Mesut Ozil set a record for chance creation in a Premier League game. I think yeah. he created 12 yeah. chances. Did you, before you saw that stat floating around, I mean, obviously he was instrumental in the goal that gave us the lead. Um, brilliant run, brilliant volleyed cross over to Alexis, but overall, how do you think he performed? Do you see a, an improvement in his performances as he adapts to the system?
3: Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I, I, I thought it was pretty, you know, Ozil has those games, those good games you don't notice and those good games you do notice and this was much more in the latter category. Um, I think what happened on this occasion, Sunderland, Sunderland were actually quite brave uh, and I was actually quite impressed albeit from a fairly low ceiling of expectation. Um, but Sunderland had very, very obviously watched our last couple of games quite closely because they were pressing up quite high. Um, well, not so much, pr- not really aggressive pressing, but I think they'd seen the way that we'd been building play recently, that we have been going to Xhaka, that we have been going to the wing-backs. And they just sat three up. They sat one on Xhaka and they put... When Arsenal had the ball, and then they had two out wide, kind of trying to close off the wing backs, which was um, which was a pretty decent tactic that worked quite well for them, um, and it was it was fairly disruptive to our build up play. But what that does is obviously that means it opens up space for you somewhere else in the pitch, and um, Mesut Özil availed of that space, and he had that time and that freedom. Um, so I think there was that to it. I think yes, he is. Adjust that. Both he and Alexis um, are adjusting to these kind of inside forward positions. Mm -hmm. Um, It plays slightly differently on the left when you've got Alexis, like really looks for the overlap uh, from the left wing back, and Monreal is infinitely better at that than Kieran Gibbs. Um, On on the right hand side, you know, Ozil doesn't play it quite the same way. He he, you know, he likes to drift in and out, and and actually, when he's in this kind of this half space. Um, you know, it, it should. On I've thought for a while on paper that these positions should really suit Alexis and Urso, and I think, you know, I went into some detail on the last pod about why it suits Alexis, but it should suit Urso as well because these are really the spaces he likes to try and find, and he likes to drift wide, and he likes to come inside, and um, it just makes it. It should make him a little bit more difficult to pick up, um, and where Sunderland concentrated on Granite Jacker. Um, you know, I think I said a couple of pods ago. As, as Xhaka settles into this team, teams are going to have to make a decision about how they deal with him. Um, because it, you can sit on him and really disrupt his play, but if you do that, then you know you're leaving gaps somewhere else. And if we've got Urzel in that kind of inside forward position, I think he's in a much better position to take advantage of it. And I think also, as we saw, you know, with with the first goal, which was a wonderful piece of football, really. Um, and, you know, Ozil popping up on the inside left position actually on, on this occasion. And and kind of what you saw is, as well, you know, I'm sure we'll go into Jacker a bit more, but he's just got, we've spoken about this a few times, he's just got a few more options. He can either go wide to the wing backs, because we've always got that width, or he can hit those kind of half spaces with um with Alexis and Ozil. Um, and, you know, we, we obviously went through Ozil an awful lot. On this occasion and I think the other thing it's kind of stopped as well having those options it's even when we play Giroud with the exception of White Hart Lane um, we're kind of less inclined to just lump it long because there's three centre-halves there so there's kind of a spare man um, Jacker doesn't just launch balls at Giroud he's a bit more cultured and imaginative than that and with Alexis and Ozil a little bit more inside um, there's kind of less of a need to do that um, so I, I think all of these things kind of contributed uh, to Ozil having a really good performance, as well as the fact that it was Sunderland um, at home, uh, which I, I don't think we can really overlook. But, you know, he. what I'd really like is I'd really, really like to see Ozil and Alexis have brilliant games at the same time. It kind of feels like there are Alexis games and there are Ozil games. And even though he got both the goals, this felt like an Ozil game. Um, both of Alexis' goals were kind of really good striker, poacher finishes, but actually the rest of his play wasn't that good. Um, whereas Saturday at Stoke, that was a, that was an Alexis game. That was, you know, Ozil played well, but that was one that Alexis took by the scrap of the neck. So may, maybe it doesn't matter so much as long as it's one of them, but I wonder if there's a way we can get both of them to, um, to really, really kind of play at their best. Um, but then again, maybe Ozil playing like this and Alexis scoring... To, uh, sorry, Ozil playing like this is a real is something that allows then Alexis to score really fairly simple poacher goals. Um, so who knows? But, yeah, I, I thought he was quite obviously um, our best player on the night. Um, maybe Xhaka challenges that, but, yeah, I thought Ozil was terrific.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because I think I read some comments just recently about Ozil saying, yeah, in the new formation, I kind of have to pop up on the right side more, and it's maybe not where I would naturally play, but you do what you have to for the team. Um, it at least suggests that there was an adaptation period for him that required him to mm-hmm. kind of understand when he could have the freedom to pop up in places like the the left half space, like he did for the for the opening goal, and when he has to occupy more of that right sided space that apparently doesn't he doesn't feel suits him as naturally. Um, Clive Shaka had had a brilliant game. I think I, I agree with Tim that it's probably Ozil's uh, man of the match performance in a lot of ways, but Shaka could just as easily have been counted in that. Group And I think it's kind of interesting, right, because he really is excelling now and showing his class and showing his quality. And I guess for you, is there a main reason why you think he struggled early? Was it the manager not knowing how to deploy him, not having consistent partner that suits his strengths? The formation didn't suit him. The usual chestnut of he just needed time to bet into a new league, a new level of play, a new team, a new city. I mean, do you have sort of a theory on why... He's now suddenly excelling in a way that, yeah. I mean, I, I I still don't think he was nearly as bad as anybody had suggested earlier in the season. But why we've seen yeah. so much improvement lately?
2: I mean, I, I think you're right. I don't think he was that bad. I think he had some spectacularly bad moments that were made into headlines, which made people not see the whole game. I, I don't think he. He's he also guy, struggled
1: right? in particular in our bad losses. So in games where we looked bad, he looked particularly bad, right? I mean, against Bayern, against Spurs away, like those were games games where he had to chase back, games where he got exposed and and yeah, but, people drew a, but a lot of conclusions from
2: those. Yeah, structurally we were we were a mess. We were shambles. Yeah. We were shambles, right? So we're we're leaving somebody with average mobility over long, you know over long spaces, we're leaving him in long spaces. Right? So and then expect him to do all the work going backwards. I mean, why when he got sent off against Swansea, he's on the left touch line trying to stop one of the fastest players I've ever seen. And he and he and he can't do it, right? And he's only only reason he's there because our left back is thirty yards up the pitch. And he's having to go across there. Then we lose him for three games. And this is hard for him to get a rhythm. We didn't really start the season as the first pick. That probably made him think, well, what's going on here? He plays against Watford. He was absolutely fantastic. Then misses the next game. Then goes through a bit of car trouble. And then... Then the, um, the the press bring forward his history in, in Germany and then suddenly he's a marked man. Every time he goes near a player, he gets booked, which completely curtails his game. Right? He doesn't want to get set up again, so he becomes inhibited. You add that to the structural issues, then he's hard for him to shine. But if you're looking at him as a footballer, it's obvious what he's got. And it's up to us to decide, and it always has been, if you invest in him, invest in him. And then make sure he's got the right shape around him. And everyone knows that he's the man. He's going to be dictating our game. He's our Xavi Alonso. He is our passer. He's the one we give it to, to get us going. I mean, I know Sundin was a was a game where statistics don't really mean much because they're not that great. But, I mean, he passed to Ozil 27 times in that game. And we talk about it being Ozil's game. Well, it was Ozil's game because he got the ball a lot. In areas where he liked it at a, at a pace, of pass that allows him to do something with it, and um, and Ozil, you know, passed back to him quite a lot as well. So it was, it was ironic on that goal. I felt when it when he chipped it through to Ozil, Errol passed it to Sanchez. The first thing I thought was, that's our three best players, pass them to each other, and they've cracked. They've cracked it, and. Um, and so, me, so not Yabka when it was
1: Cockland to Bellerin to Giroud the other day. Nah, Definitely no, I didn't not.
2: quite feel that. Didn't quite feel the same feelings, right? So that's um, our three best players, and it took it took them three to to break a stubborn Sunderland. We had a centre forward who was giving our centre half a bit of a rough time. So um, so yeah, I, I, I'm I'm a huge fan of him because I because when I look at him, I know what he is. He, I like to see a player who's got clarity of game where you can see them and think, okay, I know what you are. I know what you can do. I can now build around that skill that you have. And what Shaka can do is really, really obvious. And what he can't do is also really, really obvious. So it should be very easy for a manager to assimilate him into the team. But I think he wasn't helped. I think he wasn't helped by our manager. I think it took too long. Now we have something that obviously works, and everyone's talking about him slightly differently. But the player hasn't changed that much. I think Tim made some great points early in the season, which I didn't really notice was how one-footed he is, and how it can affect some of his passing decisions. And I heard Tim talk about it on, on podcast. I thought, mm, let me look at that, and I've seen that a few times now. But I don't, I don't see it as a massive negative as long as he's confident. When he's not confident. He can get pressed off the ball and can get robbed, and, and then it becomes recovery run. But he's, he seems to be improving on that even, so um getting his body shape much better so he's receiving on his strong side. So, um, yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of him, to be honest, and he's a big part of our future.
1: He's a classy passer in midfield, and you need that. You need that player behind Ozil who can make the pass to Ozil, who can break the lines, who can start the build-up from the back, collect it off the back four and start it, but you need to have the right partner with that, and you already touched on that a little, so I won't go over it again. Um, Tim, one player who has benefited somewhat from injuries and uh, the change to the new formation is Karen Gibbs in that he's played more in the last couple of weeks than he had the whole season, and a lot of times that's all it takes for a backup who's fallen out of favor to remind everybody of his qualities and really make the argument for him being a first-choice player and potentially being the future player for the position. Um, Obviously, we've gone out and bought a player for that position, which doesn't bode well for Gibbs, but would you suggest that this performance once again sort of drives in however many nails are left to go into the coffin of Kieran Gibbs at Arsenal?
3: Yeah, I think it does, because as as you say, it's it's all been made for him really. I mean, you can say for the last couple of years he's been a bit unfortunate with the, the really good form of Nacho Monreal, who's just uber consistent underappreciated player um and you know maybe to some respect he's unfortunate there and Monreal doesn't get injured often so he doesn't really get much of a look in but I don't know I've been looking at Gibbs the last couple of years and just thinking you know you know when you've been in a job a long time and he's you and you don't really feel like your prospects are going anywhere and um you, you know, stop me when this is familiar.
1: I mean, none of this is, no, none of this has ever happened to me. So, I, you know, look, I'm sorry yeah. that your career has been an unfulfilling and, mess. I, mine has been one success after the next.
3: <laughs> yeah. And and you're kind of sitting there going, yeah, I haven't really got many prospects here. I can probably keep this job as long as I want it. But, um, you know, I've probably not got much chance of a promotion. And some people settle into that. And I don't know. I just get this sense that he's, he's really. He's settled into that. Oh, okay. Well, I'm, I suppose I'm the backup left back now because all the things he at least, you know, I think his attacking contribution has always been a little bit overrated. I don't think just because, um, you know, well, he that's used to not going to be a problem anymore. <laughs> no, no. And you know, he used to be a winger, and he he gets forward well. Um, once he's there, he doesn't make horrific decisions by any means. Um, you know, he's he's competent, but um, you know, he's not. He's not whipping in brilliant crosses, brilliant balls. I think he makes good runs. Um, I think, you know, him and Alexis look like they have a partnership sometimes. Like, they, they seem to kind of get on. But, you know, th- there's just not quite that incision in the final decision-making process that, you know... It, there's just not enough that's like quite eye-catching. And it's weird, really, because a lot of people uh, would have said, you know, oh, we're switching to wing-backs. Then, you know, that's probably Gibbs over Monreal. And you look at what Monreal adds from an attacking sense, and that's not really what he's renowned for. He's renowned as more of a Bakri Sanya type, you know, your kind of um fullback who's more like a centre-half in that he's very secure and, um, you know, not cautious so much, but you know he's 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 quite he's quite safe. And you think, oh, Gibbs, you know he used to be a winger, and you kind of think about Kieran Gibbs as someone who's quite cavalier, but not brilliant defensively. And I'm not sure that was ever really a true descriptor of Kieran Gibbs. I always just thought he was kind of seven out of ten at everything.
1: Well he, he's um, also a little bit fast, right? And so when someone's yeah, a little yeah. bit fast, the presumption is, oh, they'll be great in attack. Well it turns out you actually yeah. need technique and skill too. And end product. Yeah. Well um, especially end product, yeah.
3: Yeah, that that that's the phrase I've probably been missing in this ramble is end product. And you look at Monreal getting forward against Stoke and you know, he hit the post with like he scored a couple of goals recently. Um, you know, he hit the post against Stoke, he had the other he just miscontrolled. Um, a through ball on the back post, he's really, really getting into those areas and looking quite threatening. And you feel like Kieran Gibbs should be able to do that. And basically I've always thought he's quite seven out of 10, but um, he, I think he went stale two years ago and now he's just getting moldy um, to be honest. And I, I think, I think he's, he's, be- he's better than the form he's showing at the moment. And to me, it just, it looks like he just needs to move. Um, for for his sake I think Arsenal can move on from him and it looks like they already have and for his own sake I mean he really should have been looking at moving last summer I think and that's what makes me think um, I know it's this is a bit of a paradox a fan having a go at a player for staying and questioning his ambition but I, I really feel like when he stayed last summer I thought to myself really? Are, are you not pushing? Do you not feel like you should move? You know you're he's going to be 28 in September, you know, like at the age of, yeah, at the age of 27, you're not playing for a couple of seasons. You should think, think, right. Oh, my prime years ahead of me. Probably not happening here. Uh, I can get a good move he, and he would get a good move. Probably not as good now as he would have, if it had gone a year or two ago, but you know, he might get, um, someone like Southampton or something like that. I'm sure that, you know, that, that'd be like upper mid table kind of pushing for Europa League kind of team. But,
1: yeah, so like Arsenal, basically.
3: Uh huh. Yeah. So it kind of when when he hasn't made any noises about moving, I, I have just kind of thought, mate, you look like you just need to go somewhere else and perhaps play in a different system, different environment, get some regular football. And um, I, you know, there's only two games left, and to be honest, I, I don't really want to see him in either of them.
2: He's too comfortable, Tim. He's too comfortable, mate. It it looks that way. He's too comfortable. Um, It it looks like Newcastle and Brighton are are fighting out for him. He's too comfortable. And it's indicative of the environment that we keep players like that on £60,000 a week. And that's the same money that Ericsson's getting for Spurs. And we have to ask ourselves, that's, that's, a, that's, that's not good, right? I, I like him, right? He's an arsehole boy. He's been an arsehole fan as a kid. I like him. But there comes a point when you reach the plateau and he's reached it. And you need, he needs to recognize it. If he doesn't recognize it, the management do. What you don't do, you don't keep them on and put them on the bench. And, and his he, he's confidence is being destroyed. He did two things in that game. There was one overlapping run when he ran outside Alexis. He was far too tight to him, had no separation at all. His timing was awful. The ball hit him on his backside. And then then when he had a chance to cross one ball, and we've all seen him in that situation many, many times. He's very hit and miss. But he just sort of ballooned this cross under no pressure. And I I don't know. The crowd just sort of just went, oh, my goodness. That's so terrible. It's not terrible. But we have high standards, right? So, and we've seen it before. I just felt the patience has run out. I don't want to rush the judgment on him, but.
1: Well, it's it's not Russian. I mean, (laughs) we've had it since, (laughs) you know,
2: the dawn of time. It's a type of. I'm using him as an example. It's the type of thing we do. We keep people too long. We don't renew people. We don't freshen up the environment. There is no sanction or accountability for averageness. We keep them on.
1: I think, I think it's a great point, I great Clive, and I think here's the point. If a play, if you have a player at a position who's not exceptional, if you look at them and you say, yeah, they're 7 out of 10, they're solid, they're not exceptional, move them on. Like Because in my mind, your goal should be to put someone on the pitch in every position who you think has the ability to be an exceptional player. And if they don't, if they're not, if they're just okay, if they're just meh, if they're a 7 out of 10, you say, well, it could be worse. We could wind up with a 6 out of 10 or a 5 out of 10. But here's the point. You don't win leagues, you don't win Champions Leagues, filling your team up with players whose ceiling is 7 out of 10. I, th- I think you want players who your ceiling is higher. And and it's been pretty clear for a while that the Kieran Gibbs ceiling just isn't that high. And I think we have players like that in a lot of positions. And I think, you know, for me, with Giroud, it was the same thing. It's not that Giroud is a bad player. He has clearly never been a bad player. He is a talented footballer, okay? But he is never going to be the get you off your seat striker that like Thierry Henry was or Van Persie or Alexis or Ian Wright or you know I mean any Dennis Bergkamp he's never going to be the guy leading a team to dominate a league or a, a Champions League and if that's not the guy then that shouldn't be the guy that you're using as your starting center forward that I mean at a top club especially at key positions like that but all over the pitch you should look at a player and say his ceiling is One of the best in his position in the world. And if that's not his ceiling, why do you have him? Then why do you have him? Um, You know, maybe you could make an argument for some positions, but even keeper. I mean, you look at United, you look at Chelsea, you look at uh, City and Spurs. You have Loris who, you know, Hugo Lloris has maybe dipped a level, but at one time considered the best in the world. Courtois, an argument for best in the world. De Gea, at one time an argument for best in the world. And City, while keeper has been a disaster for them, got rid of Joe Hart, who was the England keeper, because they thought they could improve at that position. And that's keeper. That's not even a position that I think ultimately winds up deciding leagues and and Champions Leagues. I mean, you know, easy for me to say it. Maybe Gigi Buffon winning it this season. But, like, um, I think it's the point that you you tr- you go for the high ceiling not the not the high floor um and if you can
2: if, if you can Elena, got, I got if you can if you got a a project or a club or people in the club that makes you attractive enough i always have this little theory on Benga that he keeps people around that need him a lot the moment people don't need him they leave i want the situation to be when the manager is not most important person to you. There's many other things around the club that attracts people and keeps people, whether it be what the club is doing, whether we're winning, more successful, whether there's just a, a strategy and an ambition that keeps you tied to the club. At the moment, what attracts people to the club historically has been the manager or other key players. And the moment those key superstars become less dependent on him, he can't hold them. You yeah. can't hold them. And I think players like Giroud, the reason why he's still there is because Giroud needs Venga to play at the top level. Right? And the moment they get too good, like Sanchez, for example, who I'm not sure is going to want to play in the Europa League, um, guess what? See you later. Right? So
1: the stars. Then you go get someone from the Era Divizier who's twenty years old and maybe is Suarez before he became Suarez. You know, or you or you get you speculate on some players who, if the, the chips fall right, their ceiling is one of the top ten strikers in the world. I, I think yep. when you have a guy who's who who is in his prime, clearly a seven out of ten, and never going to get you to the promised land, and you stick with that solution, the problem is you may think, well, good enough. It's not good enough, and and that's that's clearly the issue is that we have players like that where it's it's not good enough. Their ceiling isn't high enough. Their their level, you know, you could say what you want about an Aaron Ramsey, but what we saw when Aaron Ramsey played to his ceiling, he was one of the best players in world football for about three or four yep. months, right? Yep. And and so you can understand why someone might want to have patience with a player like that. Um, let, let's stay on the game for for a minute, though. I, and I, and I mean, it, to be fair, I don't know that this game merits the deepest of deep dives. Um, well, Tim, why don't you weigh in for a minute on Giroud's day? He got into a lot of good positions. He did have a shot well saved by Pickford. Um, Early, but misplaced a lot of balls. Struggled to control a lot of balls in and around the box. One of those days that Giroud can have, where it just wasn't coming off for him, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, it was really. And I, I, I think, um, you know, there was a question earlier. Have has Arsene kind of settled on an eleven? Um, if he's got the cup final in the back of his mind at the moment, I reckon he's got, you know, maybe nine or ten of those places nailed down. The one that I think. You know, and, and one of those I think is probably is it Chamberlain or Bellerin? assuming that Chamberlain's fit enough uh, when the when the actual game comes around. Um, maybe there's a kind of will it be Coquelin or Ramsey because he might want to go a little bit more conservative. But I mean, the big one I think we'd all be waiting for on the big day is is it Giroud or is it Welbeck? Um, and yeah, it, he you know he gave Giroud another chance, I suppose, after after he scored a couple against Stoke on Saturday. But I, I think this was quite far from you know his best performance really. And I think that early miss—it it was a really good save by Jordan Pickford. But I mean, you've got to be burying those. It was right on his right re- on his left foot as well. And um, you know, talking about one-footed players, one of my hobby horses. There were just a few times where he was spinning about 270 degrees trying to fanny about and get the fucking ball on his left foot and you know I I think there are a lot of positions well I think most positions on the pitch you can't really afford to be that one footed unless you're absolutely amazing like someone like Messi um, but as a centre forward you've got to be able to you've got to be able to go on your, on your weak foot um, occasionally if you watch the Ian Wright Legend DVD he says that he used to practice on his left foot all the time. And uh, the phrase he used was because when my instinct takes over, I want to know that my technique's going to be good enough. Um, because he had that really kind of automatic um, element to him in the penalty area where he did things without thinking. And he said, I practiced on my left foot all the time because if that ball dropped, if that's where it dropped, I, I knew that I was just going to pull the trigger. And, you know, I want to know that when I do that, it's going to be good enough. And, yeah, you know, particularly against a team like Sunderland, who are defending quite deep, dragging, you know, trying to run over the ball all the time. It's, it, you know, it's just not going to work. And I think it was frustrating from that point of view. Um, and uh, you know, I know he scored a couple against Stoke on Saturday. I, I don't think he played. You know, he was he was fine. I don't think he actually played amazingly well in himself.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
3: and, and and actually, the two goals that Alexis scored. Um, you know, I, I suppose the second one, uh, it's harsh to say Giroud should really have been scoring those because the second one, Giroud does actually do really well to get a shot on target um, and Alexis scores in the rebound. But yeah, it it just, this whole thing just says to me that we're missing that, if we're not going to play Alexis there, that we're we're missing that really, really convincing option there. I happen to think that, Giroud, uh, that Welbeck fits us better even if, in terms of talent and ability, I'm not sure there's an awful lot between Welbeck and Giroud. It's just that Welbeck, um, he's probably more multifunctional and he just suits the way we play a little bit better. There is an argument, of course, you know, like the Man City game in the semi-final where you know, Giroud can do a job for 70 minutes and then open it up for a player like Welbeck. But yeah, th- I, this this just convinced me more than ever that, most of the time it really has to be a more mobile option up there and really I really like Danny Welbeck you're not going to win the league with Danny Welbeck as your first choice striker um, you'll win it you can win it with him in your squad and as a very prominent player as man United did a few times but um, yeah we, we we still really need someone up there don't we
1: yeah and I think you know you start to look at some of the distribution of Shaka and the way that Alexis can both play provider. As we saw that incredible ball, he provided to Ramsey the other day that resulted in the, the shot low and across uh, the keeper that was saved. What was that against Stoke? Yes. That, yes yeah, was, perfect, yeah. that threaded and then that he can get on the end of moves and Ozil can do the same. If that's a, you know, name your wish list. If that's an Mbappe up front or an Obama Yang or a Morada or a Higuain, you know, suddenly you create all kinds of matchup problems and challenges for teams. And additionally, you just convert more of your chances. You know, you just do. Mm. Um, and and I think it, it again comes back to that point that it is not... There is a tendency to think that players are binary. They're shit or they're world class. And the reality mm. is that some players are very, very good, but still not good enough. And we've had quite a few of those. I mean, even Francis Coughlin, who we know is not my, my favorite... I think it is very clear to see that Francis Coughlin has some positive qualities, but that there is definitely a lower ceiling than is needed in our midfield, uh, especially given the players he's playing with. Um, Clive, I don't know that we have to go through the Alexis thing again. We've waxed poetic about him quite a bit. These goals weren't particularly sensational in execution. But you know, as we get to what might be the end of his career here, I... I I would sense that he has not been held to the bosom of Arsenal fans in the way that a Robin Van Persie was. I would also suggest he is every bit as good as Van Persie was, if not better. Um, how do you feel about Alexis as we reach what might be the sunset of his Arsenal career?
2: Well, well I've always looked at him and thought, it, he's very good at football, but I've always felt football is his job. And I heard uh, I heard someone talk about him once that he he lives in a house in Harrow. So most of the Arsenal players for people in England right live in Hadley Wood, they live in, right, Hampstead, they live in really nice areas of North London. But Harrow's not the nicest place. He wouldn't it's not it's not a bad place, but it's not it's not a footballer country belt, right? So and and he just got a, a pretty basic house and and he just lives his life quietly and he goes to football. And I just all—I never felt that he was permanent. We don't really, it maybe doesn't you know, fall into our hearts because we don't hear from him very often. We don't have that connection. We don't hear him, you know, right or wrongly, we don't hear him speaking English. We don't hear him. He's not, he's not somebody in front of the cameras. He's not someone trying to curry our favour. He just plays football very, very well. On the pure footballing side of things, and we spoke about that, I mean, seriously, he, he's really. I, I'm struggling to think how we're going to replace him, right? So. Um,
1: there aren't a lot of players uh, of his caliber in the world, period. And I don't think you can put enough. Emphasis on the fact that he always plays. I mean, especially at a place like Arsenal. You want to say one of the big differences between him and Van Persie, even if you think Van Persie was the better player at his peak, which I'm not sure he was, Van Persie was guaranteed, with one exception, to miss half a season or more.
2: Yeah, and and Tim, we're all thinking, as our minds move to the summer and we start thinking about transfer targets, and we're all thinking about a centre-forward, we can't really name one that we can get. We know the ones that are... Wonderful. We all know their names. You've mentioned them already earlier. But who are we going to get?
1: I mean, could it be be a musical chair? You know what? I don't want to get into transfer speculation necessarily, but your point is well taken, which is whatever truck you have to back up to Alexis and whatever other good players you have to sign to convince him that your ambitions match his own, it is a fraction of what it would cost to try to put this team back together without him.
2: Exactly. We just gotta make we just gotta make some smart decisions around who we sell. We've got we've got a couple of players there. We've got Debussy at ninety grand a week and Gibbs on sixty grand a week. We move both of those players and guess what? We're we're back in the room, right? We can give him the money and we go from there. It's just a simple it's a simple efficiency game, a simple cost exercise and and also I don't think it's about just the money for him. Why am I staying here? You've got to tell me why am I staying. What is your ambition? What are you going to do? And now we're potentially going to the Europa League. It's going to be very interesting what our buying strategy is going to be. Uh, lots of the targets we've been linked to are, are quite young, and I'm not against that. Um, but is that going to set us back a year or two, and then we go again and raise the ceiling? So it's going to be quite interesting what our transfer policy is going to be going forward. Why are we going to trim the squad down, and then we going to support Alexis Merza with a couple of marquee signings? it's going to be very interesting to see which way we go. But we need to do something. But I'm not confident to keep this guy. I'm just not confident we have the ambition, unless there are major changes, which none of us think there really are going to be major changes in next year.
1: Mm. Uh, Tim, I mean, do do you want to weigh in just quickly on how you see Alexis just as an Arsenal fan and, and how he ranks for you? I mean, we had... You know, Wright, Bergkamp, Henri, Adebayor, Van Persie, you know, I mean, Shamak, Giroud, you know, is there an equivalency here with him and Van Persie? I mean, how do you feel about that? I mean, obviously, Kane scored four today, so it's not going to happen. But theoretically, Alexis could still finish as the top scorer in the Premier League this season. Theoretically. I mean, I realize he's quite a way behind now. But, um, yeah, how how do you feel about him as we reach the end of of the happy period of our lives?
3: (laughs) Yeah, it's... It it's gonna suck if he goes, it's really gonna suck. And um it's I think I don't know why, but I get the feeling it will be more difficult than ever um to replace him. I, I think it's one of those situations where if he goes, you don't replace him directly. You try and come up with um do they call it is it Ewing theory?
1: Oh Ewing, um, yeah, Bill Simmons came Ewing. up with something called Ewing. Ewing. Ewing theory. That that you yeah, take the yeah. best player off the team and they get better.
3: Yeah, I, I'm not sure if I see that. Um, to be honest, like because when Van Persie went, you know, it was obviously became too reliant on his goals. So we tried to go another way and tried to diversify the goal threat a little bit. You know, bringing Giroud, order and Podolski, and, Podolsky and um, you know we had Jovinio there as well. <laughs> um, oh yeah. <laughs> moment moment of silence for that, um, and try and play up Theo Theo Walcott's role as well, but. You know, and I I know the only positive, if he goes, is that he's such an individual that it's perhaps not quite like taking someone like Fabregas or Vieira out of the team, who obviously are midfielders, where they're the absolute, like, everything's built around them, you know. Um, I don't think it's quite like that with Alexis, because he's played three different positions this season, which suggests, you know, Tactically, per se, he's not going to leave a massive hole. Um, it's just his individual quality. Um, and that's really all we've got to cling to um, in that respect, to be quite honest. So, I, you know, I, obviously he's not at Bergkamp or Omri level yet. Um, you know, he'd need to be doing this for a couple more years to be reaching that level or Ian right. But I think the Van Persie, um, you know, the Van Persie comparison is a good one. And, you know, like you say, a Van Persie that stays fit is kind of what we're looking at. Because when you look at not just the amount of goals, but the amount of assists as well, I think he's been in, directly involved in one third of our goals this season. Um, and that tells you that that's, that's going to be incredibly difficult to replace, even if, you know, you get you a bit of Ewing theory and others contribute a little bit more. Um, but. And, and I think the point you make there is a very good one about how many games he plays. Has he played every Premier League game so far? I'm
2: struggling to think of one he's missed.
1: He he must have missed one.
2: Well, he didn't start against Liverpool away, I know that much. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he came well at half time, Yeah, is, yeah, exactly. This is going to cost quite a lot of money, potentially, Tim. What do you think? Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah exactly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he's he's played near enough every game in you know, the Premier League and the Champions League and, and that tells you an awful lot. And yeah, I just get the feeling, I got the feeling with Fabregas, it was a bit like, well, obviously this is a massive blow because our whole team built around him, but you look at it and think, well, you know, maybe Fabregas is, it's a bit like building around Ozil. Um, you know, it, it, it does have its some drawbacks, you know, and Fabregas hasn't found game, uh, you know, He's not been a guaranteed starter at either of his subsequent clubs, um, which tells you that maybe he gives you a bit of a problem. Van Persie, you know, was injured most of the time anyway, and we got one year of his peak and lost one year of his peak. And as painful as that year was because he went and won the league for Man United, that was it after that. So it was a bit short term. And I, I understand that Alexis is going to be 29 next year, I think. So
1: He's what? He's 27 right now. 20, no, he's 27, so yeah.
3: he's going to be 28. But... So. but.
1: But Those he's 27 years. until he's 28.
3: Well, um, <laughs> let's not argue about that. Um, <laughs> and, and and the other thing you might say if you were trying to paint a rosy picture, if he does depart, is with the pressure he puts on his body and the type of player he is, he might not age well. Um but this is kind of clutching at straws isn't it really
1: yeah i mean that's yep. also not a reason to move on right to be like oh well there's always the possibilities that he could suffer a catastrophic injury or fall in a well and then, and then we'll be laughing um yeah. yeah look i i think it's pretty clear that he's the kind of player that if you lose him you are lesser for it and given that we already have a need at center forward and probably at wide fo- some wide forward scoring type player losing alexis just creates an absolute Mess when it comes to goal goalscoring. I mean, the problem we've had this season is we just don't spread our goals around that much. I mean, Giroud has chipped in with some very important ones. Alexis has a ton. Ozil has a few. And that's it. That's it. That's our goal scoring. I guess Theo has a couple. But nothing from Ramsey. You know, Cazorla obviously hasn't really played. Shaka's scored, what, one Thunder Bastard of a goal? Or two? Two
0: mm-hmm.
1: goals? Does he have two?
3: Uh, yeah, he two. scored one in the League Cup. League Cup, he scored one against Ludogorets.
1: Yeah, so the track, yeah, like, yeah, I mean, we're just not sharing the goals around. And, and so, you know, you take a 25-goal scorer out of the, the side and it, you're in a, an even bigger hole in in that most important of areas. So, look, I, I don't think there's a lot more we have to do here, but I did want to get to just quickly the, the change we went back to a back four as the game wore on. I think it's just another little sign that ultimately to be more attack-oriented, Arson would prefer to be... In a back four setup, that's his ideal. Um, I think he recognizes that right now the back three is working, and so he's not going to fix what's not broken. But I still think he kind of has a soft spot for for the back four. And he he played it a little strangely. Welbeck played in a weird role. But we got to see woby come back, and I just want to get your thoughts from both of you guys. So we'll start with you, Clive, just quickly. On seeing Welby back again, what you think of him – and? what to make of this season where he goes from here after being one of the first names on the team sheet to start the season and then sort of falling from the squad almost inexplicably to, to not being a a part of the team at all.
2: Yeah, I don't think we looked after him very well um, when he was, he was, uh, he came to the team end of last year and did really, really well. And he started the season almost as though he'd made it. He was, he was first named down, wide left, Alexis up front, and it worked really well. And I felt that we we should have been a little bit more, used him a bit more carefully. And um, I felt we overplayed him and we overplayed him to a point where the fans almost turned on him and some did, right? So, um, and then we underplay him. Then we take him out for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And we just don't see him. And we just don't see him. And then, then he comes on, and he comes on like a like a like a little puppy dog, right, running around everywhere. Uh, I think he just needs to be managed better. He needed to be taken out sooner and brought back sooner. He, he you know? never got- should
1: have been playing as much as he was at that stage. You know, I mean, I, I get it. If you're Cesc Fabregas, you play every game starting at 16 years old. Fine, but he. He could have been rotated a little more to ease him in and then rotated out a little more to ease him out. I'm really just repeating what you
2: said and interrupting you and saying it. So go on. Clyde, <laughs> That's OK. But you said it in a nice like, American accent. I really like that. Right. So, so basically, <laughs> okay. OK. Fuck me. <laughs> OK. <laughs> <laughs> but now he should have been taken out sooner and brought back sooner and then taken out again. And, and then don't let people think they've arrived too soon. We we overplayed Bellerin last season. We didn't really get a backup for him. The first thing we should do when he's when he's doing well, he's 19, he's playing every week. The first thing we should do is buy is get a proper backup for him. You know, just do it. Look after him, protect his career, protect his body. He breaks down, comes back, not very fit, gets criticised. With the doing really really well, you know, don't, plays at the new camp, does well, scores goals at Everton, fantastic. Fantastic against Chelsea, brilliant, top player. Oh, he's made it, he's made it. And then we overplay him. He has bad games. We keep him on the pitch. We move him around to the right. We move him in number ten. We overplay him, overplay him, we overplay him for a bad patch. We lose some games, and of course, as fans, what we know, what we all do, we if we look for a scapegoat, and he was fast to come to scapegoat, and Benga took him out quickly to protect him, and then we don't see him. Right, so. I I like the player, I like his technical base, I like his physicality. What's he going to be? At some point, the manager to say, what are you, son? Are you going to be someone on the wide? I think if you look at his body, you look at his size, again, he's saying to me, I need to be in the centre. So, are you quick enough and going to score me enough goals to be higher up down the centre? Well, actually, the way I look at him, I think he could potentially, if he can work on his defensive side, he could be somebody that plays deeper in midfield. I think he can travel with the ball, I think he can carry. If you watch him shoot, he has this trick of, well, it's not a trick, he has this habit of leaning back as he goes to shoot. So he doesn't, he doesn't lean forward and strike through the ball. He leans back and he tries to caress the ball on his right foot. And it's a habit he's gone into. When he first came in, he was just smashing through the ball. But now he's starting to think. So get hold of your technique in the last third on your shooting. You've got a left foot, start using it. But I think it's up to the coaching staff to say, let's fix you into a position and let's develop you that way. Let's maybe work on your defensive side as a midfielder. And maybe he's someone that can play a little bit because and travel and one of those players that, either plays in the half space or can play deep midfield, then I think it becomes really, really valuable. But again, he needs help. He needs help from the coaches to fix him and develop him. And that's where my faith is a little bit lacking.
1: Hard not to feel that he was mismanaged this season. And it's unfortunate because the talent is definitely there. Tim, when I saw him come on, I mean, I saw a player who's still a very talented guy and has a lot of potential. And to me, in this formation, I saw a guy that should be playing where Alexis is, And Alexis should be playing center forward. What do you see?
3: Yeah, yeah. And and that's one of the things that surprised me, really. He's another one who I think this formation is kind of tailor-made for um, in one of those inside forward positions because that's by and large where he does his best work and where he ends up anyway. Um, You know, whether it remains to be seen, it would be slightly different in terms of, you know, when you receive the ball out wide, um you perhaps haven't got people up your backside straight away like you have when you're a little bit more in field um but I've got absolutely no doubts whatsoever that he could cope with that he's got the technical quality to do so um and yeah I I can only echo your thoughts really I think he was he was taken out too late and brought back too late um and it's just it, it's because we need that type of player. We really, really need that type of that type of player in this team. And he's the only one of that type that we have. I mean, he reminds me a lot of, of Thomas Rosicki. And Rosicki was one that kind of player where... And this is the thing about Iwobi. I really, really like Iwobi. Um, I like a lot. And, you know, I've said on this podcast many times, I think he's one of the most important players we have. That's not because I think he's one of the best players we have. It's the type of player we need, um, which is a bit like Rizitsky, You know, Rosicky wasn't a world-class footballer. He was a very, very good one, but he made Arsenal better. And I think an on-form, confident Iwobi does exactly the same thing, um, which is why I think Arsenal was perhaps a bit reluctant to take him out when he should have. Um, a little bit earlier in the season when he, he started to be a little bit up and down but I, I think at the moment you know if he was if he was a few more game, if he had a few more games in him he could really be kind of getting motoring and easing back into this team but I think I think now anyone that's on the periphery is is, you know there's only two games left they're not really coming back in in any serious way so it's again it, it just feels like quite a few of our young players have gotten to this stage of late that you know like you say it happened with Bellerin and it's happening with Iwobi and you know holding was kind of in and out and you know now he's very much in but what does say six months down the line hold is he just going to be played in every single game now until such time that he fails and has to be taken out and I know it's very very tricky to do but I remember when Van Persie was first kind of breaking into the team in his second season and uh. Wenger was very, very. was still quite sparing about how he used him. I remember he used to sub him on 75 minutes a lot. And Wenger would say, you know, 75 minutes is enough for him at the moment. And everyone everyone was raging because they're like, oh, Van Persie is amazing. You've got to play him. But he he was quite sensibly managed um, at that point. And it, it doesn't really seem like Arsenal does that anymore. And I'm not sure if that's just... Out of desperation for results, um or whether that there's there's something else at play well, here. I think but,
1: I think also he had he clearly had less feel for the squad for how to set them up yeah. for where to play the players, for the roles of the players yeah. that they had. And when that's the case, you go with the players that you feel you know how to deploy sometimes yeah. to their detriment
3: <laughs> what and what basically what I hope his role should have been for the for this season, definitely is, Senior wide playmaker that we've not bought for several years now and Iwobi understudying Um, and you know if we're in the Europa League next year then I think Iwobi's got plenty of chances to to play in that competition um, for example and that that could really benefit some of our fringe younger players but yeah I, I think you're right I think he's been slightly mismanaged basically because the squad and the team has been slightly mismanaged over the whole season
1: yeah, I mean, Arsene does a good job of collecting talented players, but I don't know that he always does a good job of collecting a team where you can fill every role in a setup. And so sometimes you look at these players and you say, guy, well, this guy's kind of like this guy and these three are kind of like each other and I don't I don't know where to set them up. Um, let's leave it there. It's not a game that warrants a lot more discussion than that. I would say that uh, we will have vastly more to talk about at the end of the next game. It is the ultimate game of the season, the final game, uh, home to Everton, and we are all huge Borough fans, um, there is still a scenario where Middlesbrough beats Liverpool 2-0, and we draw 1-1 with Everton, and we have a Champions League playoff in that case, um, which means we'd have to do another podcast. <laughs> uh, but anyway, <laughs> we got that, and then we can concentrate on the FA Cup final and discuss uh, the Europa League or the Champions League. It'll be interesting to see the powers, the strength, and the performance of Middlesbrough uh, pushed on by the the... Uh, uh, immovable force of Arsenal's top four uh, ability to finish in the top four. It will be interesting. Anyway, Tim is on Twitter at Stilberto. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure. Clive's on Twitter at ClivePAFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. Paul's doing some kind of business trip thing. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I believe him. But he'll be back, I assure you. My name is Ellie Timothy. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Uh, it should be an interesting final day. I hope you enjoy it uh, wherever you are and then the FA Cup. So still plenty to talk about, uh, and we will do it whether you like it or not, on this podcast after that. Cheers. Enjoy the final day.
0: I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast.